Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, uh, we wrap up our nine-week, nine-week, this is the longest sermon series we've done since I've been at Asbury these past two and a half years. But this morning, we wrap up our nine-week sermon series on the parables of Jesus called Stories Jesus Told. I'll remind us that we find Jesus' parables in the first three Gospels of the New Testament. What are the first three Gospels of the New Testament? The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We find them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't find any parables in John. Uh, the Gospel of John, as best we can tell, but we do find them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want to quickly um, offer to us what a parable is and where the word parable comes from as a reminder. We've talked about this before in the series, but just as a quick recap. Our English word parable is a transliteration of the Greek word parabola, which means to cast alongside. Essentially, a parable involves placing two things side by side for comparison. Sort of like, if you can't understand this thing over here, well, then this other thing over here is pretty similar to that. And so what Jesus would do in these stories is he would take an everyday image. Uh, We have these images up here on the screens. A farmer scattering seeds, uh, a shepherd searching diligently for a missing sheep, a woman searching for a missing coin. He would take these everyday images that his audience was familiar with, that they could relate to, and he would use these images to illustrate God and God's kingdom, God's ways, so that which is ultimately indescribable could be described. And in the sermon series, we've been discovering how these parables from Jesus continue to illumine God's truth for us even out today, as they always will. Well, as we come to our parable for this morning, and again, this is our last parable for this nine-week series, I want to preface my sermon with a very important statement. Now, this statement that I'm going to share with you, it is painfully obvious, but you know what? It needs to be said. Are you ready? Stealing is wrong. Can I get an amen? Amen. Stealing is wrong. You can write that one down if you need to. Stealing is wrong. Hopefully, you don't need to write down that stealing is wrong. All of us innately know, don't we, that stealing is wrong. In fact, you and I are so convinced that stealing is wrong that when we hear stories of theft, people stealing from others, we get enraged and we get upset, don't we, even if it doesn't necessarily affect us personally? I remember a few months ago, I was watching Good Morning America. Uh, We were getting ready for the morning, getting the kids ready for school, and we had it playing on in the background. Well, Good Morning America, and maybe some of you saw this story or heard this story, Good Morning America ran a story about this woman in Colorado, retired middle school teacher, and for years and years, she aggressively saved up money to purchase a home. Well, when she was finally in a financial position where she could purchase a home, uh, there was a scammer that posed as the title company. Anybody hear about this? The the scammer convinced this woman to wire the money $198,000. 
her entire life savings to them instead of the actual title company. Consequently, the title company didn't get the money, and the woman was not able to move in with her daughter. Now, fortunately, uh, there was a family friend who set up a GoFundMe account. You ever heard of GoFundMe before? They set up a GoFundMe account on the internet, and because this story got so much media attention, I mean, it was on Good Morning America, there were a lot of people who saw it, they went to the website. This woman was able to recover most of that money through other people's generosity. But when I heard that story, I got enraged. I got upset. I got angry, as I'm sure you're feeling right now. Amen? Stealing is wrong. It's just plain wrong. Why do I share all that? Well, the reason I share that is the parable that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, you could see in my sermon title in the bulletin, I am calling this parable the most shocking story that Jesus ever told. It's a story in which Jesus, the Son of God, the full embodiment of truth, seems to make somebody who steals the person that you and I should emulate and follow. Listen with me to these words from the Gospel of Luke. Now, some parables show up in multiple Gospels. This particular parable is only found in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 16, verses 1 through 9. Listen carefully to these words. They're up here on the screens. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, What's this I hear about you? Get your report in order, because you are going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. It was 800 gallons previously, now it's 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels, 200 less bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd, and it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you here today recall hearing a sermon on this parable? I know it's hard to remember all the sermons that you've heard, except here at Asbury, right? But of all the sermons that you've heard, have you ever heard one on this parable? Maybe some people have, but my suspicion is that a lot of people haven't, and I'll be honest, we preachers get nervous about this parable. We're not really sure what to do with it. This is a story Oh, by the way, and I have this up here, this story is widely recognized as one of the most challenging, perhaps the most challenging of all Jesus' parables. And we have anywhere from 30 to 40 recorded parables in the New Testament. But the most challenging, uh, or at least one of the most, if not the most challenging of all Jesus' parables to comprehend and interpret. It's a story about this gentleman who finds out that he's going to be fired, 
So what he does is he goes behind his boss's back, he illegally reduces money owed to his boss to feather his own nest, and then when his boss finds out about it, instead of condemning the guy, he commends him, he praises him. How on earth am I supposed to preach about that? Well, folks, the good news is there is a really important word to be found in this parable. And my prayer, my hope this morning is that this word will become clear and apparent to us as we carefully, very carefully walk through the story together. So the story opens up with a rich man. And evidently, this rich man owns some sort of agricultural business, which was common back then. The economy, for the most part, was built on agriculture. And this rich man hears this report that the manager who oversees his company, the manager that he has hired to handle all of his affairs, all of his dealings with the company, well, this manager has been squandering his money. Now, we're not sure where this report came from. Maybe it came from another employee. Maybe it came from a customer. Regardless, the rich man hears the report, and he responds by immediately confronting the manager. What's this I hear about you wasting my money? Show me the books. I'm performing an audit. You're about to be fired. And the employee says to himself, oh, no. What am I going to do? I'm about to lose my job. I'm going to be tossed out onto the streets. How am I going to pay my bills and make ends meet? I suppose I could dig ditches and do manual labor, but I haven't been hitting the gym. I don't have the upper body strength. And um, I suppose I could beg for money, but come on, that's really humiliating and degrading, and I got too much pride for that. Then the light bulb goes off, and he has this eureka moment. You ever watch Looney Tunes? It's like when Sylvester figures out how he's going to get Tweety Bird, or when Wiley Coyote figures out how he's going to get the Roadrunner. He says to himself, oh, I got it. I know what I'll do. The only person who knows that I'm about to be fired is my boss. The employees don't know about this, at least not yet. So what I'll do, in a very discreet way, I'll invite these employees to come in. I'll reduce the amount of money that they owe my boss. And then once I'm out on the streets, well, these employees, they'll remember me. They'll remember my generosity and my loyalty, and they'll welcome me into their home. Quid pro quo. You scratch my back, finish it. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Calls on the first customer. How much do you owe my boss? 800 gallons of olive oil? Well, here, take the bill, quickly change it to 400 gallons. He cuts that bill in half. Folks, that would be like your mortgage company calling you up on the phone. How much money do you owe in your house? $200,000? Well, you know what? Let's make it $100,000 instead. You would love the person who told you that on the phone. And he tells the guy to do it quickly. Why quickly? Well, because he doesn't have a big window of time. His boss is looking at the books. He's doing an audit. Pretty soon he's going to find out about this, and he wants to help out as many people as possible. Calls in the next guy. How much do you owe? 1,000 uh, bushels of wheat? Well, here, take your bill, make it 800 bushels of weed. With the stroke of a pen, this guy is slashing numbers all over the place. And mind you, it's not his money, it's his boss's money. How would you bosses like that? Well, when this boss finds out about it, you know what he says to him? Why, you little genius. Why, you little genius. 
Verse 8, this is what it says. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. Admire him? What are you talking about? This guy belongs in prison. He should be arrested for what he's done. The rich man appears to applaud his employee for stealing. So since Jesus is the one who tells the story, does this by implication mean that Jesus, the Son of God, is somehow okay with stealing, with lying? Somebody say, of course not. Of course not. Remember, Jesus is the incarnation of the God of Israel, the very one who gave us the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, the commandments which specify do not steal and do not lie. Instead, and this is really important, the secret to understanding this parable is found as we continue to read the rest of verse 8. Notice again what it says here. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so what? Shrewd. He had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. What does the rich man admire about his employee? He doesn't admire his dishonesty. He doesn't admire his thievery. He admires his shrewdness. By extension, Jesus is upholding the spiritual value of shrewdness. What does it mean to be shrewd? Somebody give a one-word definition. Shrewd. Clever. What's another one? Discerning. What's another one? Smart. Astute. Wise. Observant. When I hear that word shrewd, I immediately think of my mother, Judy Jones. Uh, when I was about five or six years old, it was Christmas morning, and I was uh, unwrapping all my Christmas presents, and all of a sudden, I came across a toy that had a price sticker on it. I was so confused because the toy was from Santa Claus. And I went to my mother, and I said, Mom, I, I was under the impression that Santa's elves make all the toys up at the North Pole. If that's the case, why does this toy have a price sticker on it? My mom did not miss a beat. She said, oh, sweetie, you have to understand Santa's elves get so busy during this time of the year. They're making presents for all the children of the world, and Santa has no choice. What he does is he gets on one of his reindeer, he goes to Target, and he gets a few things. <laughs> Some of this is actually passed on to our family. And so uh, last Christmas, or just before last Christmas, uh, we had Christmas presents in the house, and uh, Noah, our son, who was four years old at that time, he's five years old now, but Noah was snooping around like I used to do when I was a kid. He was trying to look for the presents, and so we had no choice. Uh, we took pretty drastic measures. I have a picture of it up here. <laughs> you know what this is? Elf on the Shelf. You can't touch Elf on the Shelf. Otherwise, the Elf will lose his magical powers, and then he can't go back to the North Pole and tell Santa Claus how you've been. It might jeopardize Santa Claus coming to your house. I mean, Noah was going after the presents. I had to put, up, put that out there, right? To stop him. It's thinking on the spot. In the case of this manager, it's recognizing your current reality and then leveraging what you can and using it. Jesus goes on to say these words. In the second half of verse 8, and it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. This is not a compliment to us. 
What Jesus is basically saying is that those outside the church who don't follow God, they tend to be shrewder and more clever than those within the church who, who are followers of God. Jesus is saying to us in a nutshell that as Christians, we need to practice more shrewdness. We need to practice more shrewdness. That's why elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus speaks these well-known words. Uh, this is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 16. Maybe you've heard this verse before. Jesus says to his followers, look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. How many of you like snakes? Snakes get a bad rap, don't they? Lots of people don't like snakes, but you know what? Even if you don't like snakes, you've got to give snakes credit. Snakes are very smart creatures. They lie in silence. They blend in with their surroundings. Can you see the snake in this picture? Vaguely. I promise you there's a snake there. They camouflage themselves. They, they blend in with their surroundings. They cleverly stalk their prey. Well, it's no shock, it's no surprise that the word shrewd that's used in Matthew 10 when referring to snakes, that's the same word that is used in Luke 16 when referring to the dishonest manager. Here's what it comes down to. Jesus isn't giving us permission to be unethical like the dishonest manager. Jesus wants all of us to be ethical, moral, righteous people. He's not giving us permission to be unethical like the dishonest manager, but he is giving you and me permission to be smart like the dishonest manager. Jesus doesn't commend the guy for what he did. Instead, he commends the guy for the shrewd, the clever thinking behind what he did. This guy saw that he was going to be fired. And instead of burying his head in the sand and ignoring all that, he did something about it. And here's what's really cool. The Bible gives us plenty of examples of moral, righteous, ethical people practicing the same kind of shrewdness. And so what I want to do for just a few minutes is I want to highlight two of them. Two examples in the Bible of righteous people practicing shrewdness. You ready? The first example is Abigail. Can you say that name with me? Abigail. Um, Abigail is not a well-known figure of the Bible. In fact, it occurred to me as I was putting together this sermon, I think this is the first time I've ever preached on Abigail before. Her story is found in 1 Samuel 25. I would invite you to read it later on today or this week. Uh, I'm going to give you just the Cliff Notes version. Abigail was married to this man named Nabal. N-A-B-A-L, Nabal. Uh, Nabal was kind of a, a bit of a loose cannon. And at one point, uh, David, this is the same David who became king of Israel, David sent messengers to Nabal and asked Nabal for hospitality for David and his men. Hospitality was extremely important in the ancient world. Nabal, however, refused David's request for hospitality, and he insulted David and David's men. Consequently, David was just about to take vengeance. He was mad. He was upset. He wanted to go after Nabal and his family. But that's when Nabal's wife, Abigail, cleverly intervened and did what she could to calm David down. Check out what it says here in 1 Samuel 25. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. You need to know this and figure out what to do. Even the servant recognized 
that Nabal, he was a foolish guy. So he goes to Nabal's wife, Abigail, you got to figure this one out. Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. I'm getting hungry just reading all that. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him as a sign of respect, humility. And then after offering these gifts of food, and what's the old saying? The way to a man's heart is through his? After offering these gifts of food and apologizing for her husband's rudeness, Abigail comes to hear these words from David. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. We might even say, thank God for your shrewdness. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Abigail was shrewd. She didn't sit on her hands. She didn't refrain from action. She did something. She did what she could to calm David down. Was David getting out of hand? Absolutely. She did what she could to calm him down. Another example of great shrewdness, I told you I would give you two examples. Well, a second example of great shrewdness is found through the Apostle Paul. Paul, of course, was a missionary. He was a leader in the early church. Um, sometimes he came up against the law. In fact, oftentimes he came up against the law uh, for his missionary efforts. Well, at one point, Paul was arrested by the religious authorities for preaching about Jesus. you got to see what Paul did during his trial in the book of Acts. This is absolutely brilliant. This is genius. It says, as Paul realized that some of the members of the high council, this is the council that was trying him, some of the members of the high council were Sadducees, and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. This divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, or angels, or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully, we see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Now, how would the Sadducees have heard that, given the fact that they didn't believe in angels or spirits? It ticked them off. So the writer goes on to say, as the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart, so he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. Do you see what he did there? Paul brought up the fact that he was on trial. Why? Because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. He had faith that because Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday, one day all of us will be raised by God. Now, these particular Pharisees, they didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection. They weren't followers of Jesus, but they did believe in the resurrection in a general sense. The Sadducees, however, did not. The Sadducees believed that when you die, that's it. Lights out. So by referring to this contested topic of the resurrection, Paul strategically, he didn't do this by accident, he strategically divided the council. He put these men against one another and thereby took the attention off of himself 
and bought himself by God's grace more time to preach about Jesus and advance God's purposes in this world. The Bible offers us countless examples of people practicing shrewdness. But unlike the dishonest manager that we read about in Luke 16, they practiced shrewdness in a way that honored God, in a way that glorified God and pleased God, and created space for God's purposes to be advanced. So as we prepare to wrap up this sermon, here's the question I want to leave you with. How are you and I practicing such shrewdness in our daily lives? How are you and I practicing such shrewdness for God and God's kingdom in our daily lives? Here's the truth with all of this. As Christians, we are people of faith. We are not fatalists. You know what a fatalist is? A fatalist is somebody who subscribes to fate. A fatalist is somebody who throws their arms up in the air and they say, it's going to be what it's going to be. You ever heard somebody say that? I can't stop it. I can't change it. I can't fix it. I might as well just step back and let things run their course. People of faith, on the other hand, they're smart. They're wise. They're decisive. They take action. They strategically use what they have, use what's in front of them, even if it doesn't seem like very much. Not for themselves, but for God and God's kingdom. Daniel Meyer tells a story about this elderly woman who one day heard a sermon like you all are doing right now. And following the sermon, she felt God encouraging her to use her own gifts and to use her situation in life to minister to the needs of others. And so she started to think about the gifts that God had given to her, and and she realized that a lot of her friends had told her that she had the gift of hospitality, that she had a warm spirit and inviting demeanor, that people just felt comfortable and at ease whenever they were with her. And then it also occurred to her that she lived by herself in an apartment located right next door to a large university. And she realized that the students, or some of the students, if not a lot of the students at that university, were homesick and missing their families. This idea popped into her mind. It was strange, but it was also simple. She went to the closet. She pulled out a stack of three-by-five cards, and she wrote on the cards, are you a college student who's lonely? Are you missing your family? Why don't you come to my apartment at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for tea and conversation? She wrote down her name, her phone number. She put those cards all around campus. Eventually, people started to call her. They made appointments to stop by. It was a slow start at first, but more and more students began to trickle in. They would talk with her. They would chat with her. She would even share her faith with them in very effective ways. In fact, by the time that woman died 10 years later, this is a true story, by the time she passed away, she had 80, 80 honorary pallbearers at her funeral. Each one of those pallbearers at one point had been a homesick college student 
who came to her apartment, had a conversation, heard the gospel of Jesus, and the heart of this servant of God. That woman was shrewd. She used what she had, not for herself, but for these students, and thus for God and God's kingdom. Imagine the collective impact it would make. Just imagine with me the collective impact it would make in God's kingdom if all of us practice that kind of shrewdness, if all of us practice that kind of shrewdness with our time, with our money, with our jobs, with our resources. God has given us so very much. And so by grace and the Holy Spirit's power, let's use what we have for God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the brains, the minds that you have given to all of us. God, help us to practice more shrewdness, to be shrewd with what we have, with what's in front of us, even if it doesn't seem like very much, so that your purposes might be advanced and your kingdom might be made known. We ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.